Amen. Amen. All right, let's go Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word to reveal himself to us and to turn us into who he wants us to be. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read on your own, you're at a disadvantage in those two things. But we can fix that. we got some really cheap paperback Bibles. We'd be happy to send you home with one. The text is really small. If you're older, you got to get out the good glasses. But, hey... It's free Bible. Um, so that video that you saw a second ago, um, our, uh, our two older, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, we've got small groups for children when the adults are meeting. Some of the kids stay in the nursery. We've got a couple classes for uh, older elementary kids. And uh, the two older classes of our elementary age kids uh, do have, have like a little music time uh, in their setup. They come together and sing songs. And that's one of the songs that they sing. I promise you, my five-year-old knows the words of that song better than you do. <laughs> and so uh, it, it's, man, I like that song. Oh, Lord, the, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. That's a good, that's a good line right there, right? And so, um, yeah, pray for our kids as they sing big songs like this. We're, we're trying to teach big theological thoughts to our children when they go to small group. Um, so all this last year, uh, we kicked off a brand new series uh, the week after Easter, and except for a couple of short little breaks, we took some time off in the summer, we took some time off around New Year's, except for a couple of breaks here and there, uh, this has been our reality since, since then. And so all of the back half of 2018 and into now, uh, a series that we call The Story of God, and Garrett did our artwork, it looks like a movie poster, I'm, I don't know how he comes up with these kinds of things, but we've been building this thing, at least in the Old Testament section, as the greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. And as we walked through the Old Testament part of the Bible, uh, we, we did character studies. We looked at the life of the major characters of the Old Testament. And we asked the question, how does their story point us to the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? And so uh, it, it's, it's our thought that the whole Bible is really about Jesus. He's both the active agent and the star of the show, no matter where you turn. Right? Uh, and greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know is a fitting description as long as you're hanging out in the Old Testament. I mean, there's war, there's famine, there's empires rising and falling. you got uh, folks like Samson who are killing folks. Like, that's a good read if you're a guy. Right? If, if you get bored with the Old Testament, my assumption is that you're not actually paying attention. All right? Because there is some fun stuff in there. There's actually stuff I won't let my kids read. All right? It's good, good time. And so greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know is a fitting description as long as you're hanging out in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament isn't the entirety of the Bible, right? We also have the New Testament. It's a lot shorter. It's, there's there's more, way more Old Testament than New Testament. But what about the New Testament? If the Old Testament is really kind of this great action flick, what's the New Testament? Well, we introduced the idea a few weeks back that the New Testament is really a chick flick. Yeah. Not because it has Tom Cruise looking longingly into the camera saying, You complete me. <laughs> is that movie too old? Is that a bad reference? Okay. It's not a chick flick because it's got bad acting and a weird storyline that somehow magically resolves at the end. It's because every great chick flick ends the same way. How? With a wedding and a happily ever after. And that's exactly how the Bible ends, with a wedding and a happily ever after. And so, 
we kicked off this idea, this little four-week mini-series, if you want to call it that, uh, when we came out of New Year's, looking at the New Testament through the lens of the four stages of a first-century Jewish betrothal and wedding. And I know that's a mouthful. But we wanted to give you a picture of how to read the New Testament. There's, there's some complications with that, though. First of all, when we in the West think of a wedding, we don't think of four stages at all. We think of one event, right? We think of a big ceremony. Uh, doesn't matter what led up to that moment, but you've gathered friends and family. You've thrown a lot of cash at the event. All right? Everybody's ooing and eyeing as the bride walks down the aisle. All right? uh, but you exchange a couple of rings, you say your vows, and you are pronounced husband and wife, right? That's what we in the West think of when we think of a wedding. But that's not the world that, that the first century church operated in. That's not how they viewed a wedding at all. And, and so each of these four stages was super, super important. And each of these four stages was, we could say, official from beginning to end. And they are this. The ketubah, or the writing, the preparation, the invitation, and the consummation. And I, I threw out this uh, disclaimer the, the week, first week, and I threw it out last week in our video, and, and those of you who were able to see it online. All right? uh, but I, I keep giving this disclaimer because it's necessary. This is not the only way to look at the New Testament. We, we shouldn't only read the New Testament in light of a first century Jewish wedding betrothal, but it's a good way, and it's a necessary way, because I think it'll help affect the way we read the New Testament for good after that. You, you following me? We don't, we don't walk away from themes of atonement. We don't walk away from themes of sacrifice. We don't walk away from themes of, of uh, the redemption of the church. We don't walk away from those themes. But if we understand how a Jewish wedding works in the first century, I think we'll protect ourselves from misreading the Bible in a lot of ways. So you tracking with me on that? Good. So, the ketubah, the preparation, the invitation, and the consummation. And to the first century Jewish mind, a wedding was all of these stages, not just the final stage. It was all of these stages, and it was official from the very beginning all the way to the end. And it would take several months, maybe even like a year or more, to go through this entire process. Ain't nobody running off to Vegas here, right? This would take a long, stinking time, and it was official from beginning to end. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first two, the ketubah and the preparation. So what are those? Well, the ketubah would begin with the bridegroom leaving his father's house and going to the home of the one he was pursuing. He would sit down with his potential bride and her family and write a covenant, terms of agreement for both parties, along with an agreed-upon agreed upon bridal price to be paid by him. If the bride and her family agreed to the terms, the covenant would be sealed with the act of drinking a cup of wine, and the bridegroom would then go on to secure the payment for the right to marry his betrothed. And so what we said two weeks ago is that this is exactly what Jesus does for his bride, the church. He left his father's house, and he came to the one he was pursuing. He made the, the necessary payment to purchase a bride for himself by dying on the cross. This is exactly what Jesus has done. But that's not all, because last week, for our little Facebook video, we also talked about the preparation. So in case you weren't able to log online for that, we said that the preparation was the bridegroom and the bride separate for an extended period of time possibly even a year, to prepare in their own ways for the final act of the wedding. The bridegroom returns to his father's house to prepare the couple's future home, and the bride sanctifies herself or sets herself apart by pampering herself with special baths and perfumes so that she can present her body to her husband without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the preparation. 
the bridegroom and the bride separate off and they go their own separate ways and they do their thing to get ready for the final act of the wedding. But they're doing their own thing. And so last week we, um, we looked at John 14 where Jesus says, I, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And we said then, that text doesn't really have anything to do with some great reward that we're going to be receiving from Jesus for doing a good thing here. It has everything to do with Jesus promising to return soon for his bride. Jesus is saying, hey, hey I'm going away for a while, but don't worry, because I'm coming back for you. That's what that's about. He's the obedient son waiting patiently for the father's permission to return and gather his bride. That's what's going on in this culture. That's what's going on in Jesus' mind. But the bridegroom isn't the only one doing something during this preparation time. So what's the girl doing? Well, we looked at Ephesians 5 where Paul says that Jesus sanctifies his bride by the washing of water with the what? Washing of water with the word. The bride is getting ready too. Normally, a Jewish girl would be responsible for this whole act on her own. She would gather the soaps and she would gather the perfumes and the oils and do her thing. Maybe her family was taking a part in it, but it was her responsibility to get herself ready for the consummation. It was her responsibility to prepare her body for her husband as a gift that she could give to her husband. But Ephesians 5 makes it explicitly clear that it's not the bride's responsibility to clean herself up here. Whose responsibility is it? Jesus's, right? Jesus is the one cleansing his bride. Jesus is the one getting his bride ready for the finality of this wedding. He's the one doing the cleansing. He's the one washing away every spot and wrinkle and blemish. So we've looked at the ketubah, and we've looked at the preparation. What's next? The invitation. All right, so in a second, we're going to look at Matthew 22. All right, but before we get there, we need to set the stage. Chapter 22 plays out during what's normally called, commonly called Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life, right? So where is Jesus during this week? He's in Jerusalem. He's spending most of his time at the temple. Right? He's in and out of there for several days, right? but he's hanging out in Jerusalem. And chapter 21 kicks off with what we know as the, uh, the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into town on the donkey of a colt, and, uh, or the colt of a donkey, and uh, everybody's waving palm branches, and everybody's shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, right? The Sunday before Easter. It's a big deal. Everybody's celebrating Jesus, and it's a really cool picture, and Jesus is worthy of that and infinitely more, right? Like, the folks laying down palm branches for the donkey to walk on is still too small compared to what Jesus is dessert. It's really cool, but it's also not the end of the story. Because in case you don't know how Holy Week plays out, well, things fall apart really, really fast after that. Like really stinking fast. Chapter 21 also tells us about Jesus cleansing the temple and cursing a fig tree. He goes into the temple and he starts turning over tables and running out the money changers. And I'm sure everybody's really excited about that, right? Like if, you're, if you've got the, like the money changing job in the temple and Jesus comes in and drives you out, how do you feel about Jesus right now? And then immediately after that, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes outside and sees a fig tree that's blossoming like it should have a bunch of figs on it, and there's no figs on it, and so he curses it, and that tree shrivels up and dies. How are we feeling about Jesus right now? What's the point of the story? Well, 
he curses it for having the appearance of fruitfulness, but not having any actual fruit, right? It's pretty and all, but it's dead to its actual created, intended purpose. I think those two stories are connected together. They're totally connected together. <laughs> the religious leaders correctly start getting the picture that Jesus isn't just talking about a fig tree. He's talking about them. And so they begin to challenge Jesus more directly. Like they were kind of in and around, and every once in a while they'd pop their heads up throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. But from chapter 21 on, oh, they're on a mission. They're taking him down. And so in the middle of chapter 21, Jesus launches into a major section of teaching through parables, little illustrative stories. And the first parable is about two sons being given a task by their father. The first son says, yes, sir, yes, daddy, and then doesn't go do what his daddy asked him to do. The second son is a jerk about things, refuses to do what dad asks, but then later comes around and does what dad asks. Guess which son Jesus praises in that story? The, the second son, right? The one who actually ended up doing what Jesus asked him to do. Not the one who put on the veneer. But then Matthew continues going. It, it, it says that Jesus didn't even stop to let him catch a breath. He just launches into another parable. And this parable, the second parable, is about a man who builds a vineyard and leases it out to some tenants. Right? The man goes away to a far country for a while and leaves the tenants to take care of his vineyard while he's gone. And so he wants to check in on some things, and so he sends some messengers. And the Bible tells us, Jesus' story, his parable tells us that these messengers are mistreated by the tenants. They run them off. And so he sends some more messengers. That's a gracious act, right? Like, like, you kicked my first messengers out. I'm going to send some more messengers. And so Jesus, all right, Jesus tells this parable, and the, the, the landlord sends some more messengers. And this time, they, they treat them worse. And so, and then after that, the man decides to send his own son to deal with the problem. And Jesus tells us in his parable that the tenants see the son come, and they're like, hey, I got an idea. Let's kill this kid. And then... We'll get to keep the vineyard for ourselves. Because that'll work, right? So the son comes, they kill the son, and they think they're home free. Jesus is gathered around by some scribes and some Pharisees and some, some priests, some religious elite leaders of his day, some leaders in the temple uh, that would have, have been there, the ones that are trying to challenge him. And as Jesus is telling the story, he just kind of calmly asks them the question, how do you think the landlord's going to treat these guys? I mean, what would your answer be? He, he's, he's going to deal harshly with them, right? And so... These really smart religious leaders, they give the right answer. Well, he's, he's going to put them away. And that's the nice way of putting it. And in chapter 21, verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The priests and the Pharisees respond in verse 45 by saying, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Duh. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Okay, but what does that have to do with first century Jewish wedding customs in Matthew chapter 22? 
Because Matthew chapter 22 begins with a very important word. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, so are we connected to chapter 21 here? So everything that Jesus is about to unfold in this parable is standing on the shoulders of, is built on the foundation of this long string of interaction that happened in chapter 21. Yes, the triumphal entry was a big deal, but everything falls apart quickly, and Jesus immediately places himself at odds with the religious leaders of the day. He immediately begins to cast himself as the, not only the fulfillment, but the replacement for these guys. And they are starting to get the picture. And so in Matthew 22, verse 1, it says this, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. See, we're getting to a wedding after all. Verse 3, And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves uh, have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Verse 6, While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus begins teaching a parable involving a wedding feast. And we'll talk about the feast part more next week when we get to the consummation. But as a part of this feast, preparations are being made and invitations are being sent out. Because there needs to be wedding guests at this party. And so the invitations are being set out. And the king wants to show honor to his son. And so this party is going to be legendary. Alright? This king has the means and the resolve to throw a big shindig. And he's going to see to it. Now, when Katie and I got married, there were a lot of things about our wedding that were intentionally small. But the reception was intentionally small. Alright? Uh, everything about our wedding was like that. But man... The party afterwards, we just kind of, we, we didn't want to make a big deal out of it. And so we planned it at like 2 o'clock. Like, if you're ever in charge of planning a major event, 2 o'clock. <laughs> They'll eat lunch before they come, and you'll turn them loose before supper, right? <laughs> you got to think smart about this. And, 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 we held it at a Baptist church, so we didn't have to pay for alcohol. <laughs> that is how you save some cash. We shoved some cake in each other's mouth. We talked to other people while they ate the finger foods. Then we hopped in a car, head off to the honeymoon, stopped at a fried chicken place on the way. You can see why I'm the romantic side of the family. It's not wrong to have a big wedding. It just wasn't our style, right? It's not wrong to spend money on that kind of stuff. We decided, though, that's not how we wanted to spend our newlywed money. We wanted to do it differently. We also look absolutely nothing like what's going on in this parable. Because this party is a 
big old deal. You, you don't get by with finger foods at this fair. Right? It, 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 it's not just a fattened calf. Right? There's, there's plurality here. He didn't simply kill a fattened calf. He killed plural fattened calves and oxen. King is feeding some folks. This is going to be a massive, massive party. He sent invitations throughout the entire kingdom. It seems to be that he sent out, like, save the dates at one point because when the time for the party actually comes, it's like, okay, go get them. They know that they're all to be coming. It's time to go collect the guests. Like, and so he sent out invitations. He sent out save the dates. He's doing a big, big deal here. This party is absolutely massive. And then word begins to trickle in. Nah, I'm all right. Or the New England version. I'm set. Hate that. <laughs> what does it even mean? Word begins to trickle back in. No thanks. I'm not interested. Now in this culture, in our culture, like you get your feelings hurt, we have this real sense of autonomy in our culture, right? You move on. I guess they weren't really your friends after all. In this culture, if you have the audacity to tell the king no, how's that going for you? But what does the king do in the story? He sends more messengers. He, the king had the right in this culture to just wipe them off the map immediately. But in this parable, in Jesus' story, the, the, the king sends more messengers. But even those messengers are mistreated. Some are ignored. Some are reviled. Some are killed. And Jesus says that the king punished the wicked and then turned around to invite a different group. Like, I'm done with them. I'll focus my attention here now. Instead of inviting those the world would count as worthy of the king's party, he invited those that, well, kind of leaves the world scratching their heads as to why. Right? Where does he say he goes? To the main highway, to the main road, Right? Find everybody you can find, good and bad. And verse 10 tells us that's exactly what they do. They go get everybody they can find, bad and good. So why would the king invite just anybody to this wedding party? Well, to answer that question, I need to come at it from around the side. Whenever we talk about our one job to do in here, Whenever we talk about the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations, whenever we talk about the general topic of missions, like there's three underlying realities that drive our one job to do. Wait, three realities? Yeah, three realities. Like three things that I can point at and say, this is why we do this. Three underlying realities that drive our one job to do. And the first one is obvious because it's the one you hear about the most. It's because Jesus said so. Like Matthew 28, that, that we talk about that a lot in here, right? Like if, if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and, and that's either a true thing or not a true thing. And if it's a true thing, it kind of affects literally everything. And so if we're going to have any kind of real sense of intellectual integrity, like we probably, you know, maybe ought to do what he says. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And so 
full stop, because he said so is a good enough reason to plant our flag and let that be it. But it's not the only underlying reason. We don't need more, but we definitely have more. The second one is because it's a fountain for our greatest joy. We see that in Matthew 13 with the kingdom of God parables that Jesus tells about treasure hidden in a field and a pearl of great value. And in both of those stories, the man goes off and sells everything he has so that he can go and enjoy buy that thing. The Bible teaches unapologetically that walking in what God has called you to walk in actually produces a joy in you that can't be matched by other things in this world. I'm not talking about anything labeled the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about stuff. I'm not even talking about happiness. There's a difference between happiness and joy. But the Bible paints the picture that when you walk in what God has called you to walk in, it explodes inside of you. So what does that mean on a practical level? Well, if you come to me, kind of in a pastoral counseling setup, and you claim to find fulfillment in things that are outside of God's design for you, I'm going to assume in that moment, not that your appetite is too small or too big, but rather that it's too small. Because you and I have been created to feast on something far larger than what this world can provide. We've been created for the filet mignon of God's will, and we settle instead for junk food. Living and walking in what God has created you to live and walk in, make disciples of all nations, has no equal in this world. So I'll just lay all my cards on the table this morning. Like, this is one of the reasons like, we're always trying to push you into these things, whether that's mission trips or gospel conversations here or this and that, service opportunities outside this wall. Like, the reason why we're always trying to push you into those things, yes, it's because Jesus said so, but also because I honestly believe that once you get a taste for that, you'll never want to give it up. Give you a real bite and then turn you loose. That's what we're aiming at. But it's also only the second underlying reality because there's one more. This is the one that plays into why a wedding party would be full of a bunch of weird folks. It's that he deserves the praise of all. Emphasis on all of his creation. We can look all over the Bible at that reality, but I think it's best served this morning by looking at Psalm 66, 67. Excuse me. Hold your finger there and turn with me to Psalm 67. We'll come back to Matthew 22. Psalm 67 is written long, long before Jesus sets, steps onto the scene and un locks, I guess you could say, the kingdom of God for the Gentiles. Before Jesus steps onto the scene, the kingdom of God was really just for the Jews. And he had one people group that God was working through, and one people group that God gave the law to, and one people group that God gave his blessing and his presence to. Uh, uh, but Psalm 67 paints a very, very clear picture for us that even though Jesus isn't on the scene yet, that this is the plan the entire time. That this is what's coming down the pipe. 
And in Psalm 67, the psalm writer says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth Fear him. So this is a truth that needs to be locked down this morning, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Like To properly understand what's going on in the wedding party, this is a truth you need to understand. Those who are invited to the wedding feast are not invited because they have something to offer. They're not invited because they bring something to the table that God needs or needs to show honor to. The story isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the active agent and the star of the story, the bridegroom. It's about Jesus. He's doing something massive here, and he is doing every bit of it for his own glory, not mine. He invites us into this celebratory story that neither you nor I are the center of this thing that anything revolves around. And this story ultimately ends with a giant celebration from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation around His throne. Around His throne. The notion that anyone would, be, would turn down an invitation to celebrate forever with this great king is absolutely absurd. Think just for a second who the host is. And think just for a second what kind of party this host throws. The notion that anybody would say, I got better plans. It's absurd. It's absurd. And yet, completely blind to the eternal and incomparable joy and satisfaction that is lovingly offered to them, some ignore and some revile and some abuse and kill the messenger. But the king will throw his party. You might say no, but the king will throw his party. The son is going to be honored, and so he invites all who have ears to hear. Each week in this little four-part series, we've been closing out with a question that we could try to wrap up everything in. So the, in week one, we said, are you part of the bride? In week two, we said, have, are you being prepared? I guess our question for week three could be, have you responded to his invitation? Have you responded to his invitation? Have you said yes? Or have you responded similar to the way the, the first wedding guests responded? Maybe that's ignoring Maybe that's outright revile. Maybe worse. At the end of the day, a no still keeps you out of the party. Have you responded to the invitation of the great king? But wait a second, Stephen. Wasn't there another part of Jesus' parable? Yep. Wasn't there a part about some dude without a wedding garment and getting kicked out of there? What's that about? I'm so glad you asked. Look back at Matthew 22 with me. 
after the king invites his new guests in, he starts to go down the line and greet everybody. And in verse 11, we read this. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, so if the king's so desperate to get folks into the wedding party, why is he kicking folks out now? Well, during this part of history and in this culture, it would have been common for the host of a party like this, wedding party or other, to give a special garment to those who would have been attendants of the party. We see this in several places in the Bible. It's not always true of every party, but it's typically true of the, the fancier shindigs. And we see this play out in Revelation 6 when, when we talk about people being given a garment to wear that's Christ's righteousness. We see this play out over and over again in the Bible. The host of the party would give a special garment for the people at the party to wear. And we kind of do this with like bridesmaids' dresses today, right? Ain't nobody like taffeta. No one. No one chooses to go, mm, I really want to wear this dress next week. But why? Why do they wear it? Because the wedding isn't about them, right? They're there to honor and celebrate someone else. And so they put on the weird dress and they do it with a big old smile on their face because the day isn't about them. So what's going on here? Well, it seems like we had somebody who snuck in. He didn't have a wedding garment like everybody else did. He's not identified with the rest of the wedding party. He's not there to honor the son. He's just there to get some of the king's free stuff at the party. Newsflash, you don't get to hang out at the king's party if you're not there, if you're only there for the king's stuff. Like, that's not how it works. If you're not there to honor the son, you don't get to keep staying at the party. It doesn't matter what your game plan is. It doesn't matter if you, you snuck in. It doesn't matter if you got in the middle of things and tried to blend in and you just kept quiet in the corner just hoping not to be noticed. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the king will eventually greet each guest face to face. When we talk about accepting the invitation from the king, we're talking about something way deeper than just hanging out where, other, where all the other wedding guests are. It serves you nothing but maybe some free stuff for a little while to hang out where the other wedding guests are. king will eventually greet each guest face to face. And on that day, and on that day, you are either wearing the garment of his righteousness gifted to you, or you're not, and it will be obvious to the king. He's not going to have to take a second look at you. He'll know immediately. The king will see right through it. And Jesus says in verse 13 that on that day it will be the exact same fate for those who don't have a wedding garment as those who just said a no right out of the bat. Who just said, no, I'm not interested. They're cast out. And so maybe we should refine our question for the morning. Instead of, have you responded to his invitation? Maybe we need to say, have you actually responded to his invitation? Playing church is a terrible, terrible game plan. 
kind of boring. But it's, it's actually stupid if you've been offered a real invitation. I mean, think through that for a second. Trying to play low-key at the wedding party, hoping not to get noticed when you actually are an invited guest. I mean, what are we doing? Hanging around those who are there to celebrate the bridegroom just because there's some peripheral benefit to you, it will not end well for you. It will not end well for you. It's outright crazy because you've been invited to the actual party. Have you actually responded to his invitation? The gift of grace and Christ's righteousness is freely and joyfully offered to you this morning as well. You don't have to pretend to be here. The story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest action-adventure drama slash chick flick the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, and that's that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, right? And I, I mean really, honestly, press into him. Press into God today. And you do that best by pressing into him through his word. And so maybe consider starting with the gospels. He's given them to you, to you so that you may know him through them. Chase him there. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang around. But I want to be very, very clear. It's possible to be hanging around here a long time and never actually be a follower of Jesus. And so if that's you, you have an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting the one that the story is all about. You meet Jesus. He came to us. He pursued the one he wanted for his own. He came to live among us. He lived in a way that was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous. He did all of this so that he could be the perfect sacrifice to stand in the gap and to pay the debt that you and I owe for our sin. The bride payment has been made. If you're here today, and if you never have trusted him and his work on your behalf, we want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And so I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And I'll be down here to talk if you want to talk. You don't need me, but man, I'd love to walk you through what that next step looks like. It's repentance and faith. But I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who came. A God who did not leave our salvation in our own hands. We said last week that if it were up to me, I'd be in a lot of trouble. And in your goodness and in your great love for us,